The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Tonight, folks, I'm broadcasting outside in my brother's backyard <laughs> in a place called Montreal, Canada. And as most of you know, I usually broadcast the show from Kingston, but I just happen to be in Montreal. So here we go. We're going to try it this way and see how she goes. Man, get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Kick back in that comfy chair or if you're outside get that beverage of choice going because it is a perfect night it is 33 degrees here celsius which means it's hot as hell in montreal probably in the high 90s just to let you know and uh, it's just a beautiful night the stars are shining um the international airport is behind me so every now and then we're going to be hearing an airplane go over or a mosquito flying by as it just did and i'll be attacking it with all gusto tonight we're going to take you on a very special journey, folks. A journey under the stars, deep into the Mojave Desert, to a place known as Indian Holy Land. That place is in Joshua Tree, California. Tonight, we look at the Morongo Basin, giant rock, which is a freestanding boulder over seven stories high. And we look at something called integration not integration integration and see folks in 1953 in the chambers underneath giant rock a fellow by the name of george van tassel started making contact with ets this led to an encounter where george was taken on board an alien spacecraft and given a formula but not a formula like any other this was a formula for, quote, a proprietary frequency, are you ready for this? For rejuvenating living cell tissues. Let me repeat that again, a proprietary frequency for rejuvenating living cell tissues. George Van Tassel passed away suddenly in 1978, and just as suddenly and ominously all of his proprietary electronic equipment, his notes and diagrams, disappeared. And they haven't surfaced to this day. He also had an FBI file. How many people can lay claim to that? And his FBI file, folks, remains classified 
to this day. Our guest and guide tonight through this amazing story is an expert historian on this area, and it is my great pleasure to welcome Barbara Harris to Night Fright, all the way from Joshua Tree itself. Barbara, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's our great so, pleasure. Hi, I'm here from the wonderful Mojave Desert. So you're talking about the weather. We're sitting here getting ready for dusk, and our sun is about ready to set, and we're getting ready for our night skies, ready to go into our sightings and spotting our UFOs in the evening skies. <laughs> that sounds like It's quite common out here in the Mojave Desert. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we have aliens in Canada, Barbara, but they, they usually house themselves in Ottawa. And uh, that's our politicians, by the way. Ottawa's our Washington. Okay. So I always make that joke. And um, <laughs> Contact in the Desert, folks, is a wonderful annual conference that takes place right in Joshua Tree. And after we get through tonight's show, you're going to understand exactly why it takes place in Joshua Tree. And uh, the conference this year is taking place from May 29th through May 31st, 2015. Joshua Tree, California, right near Palm Springs. And some of the people there, Jim Mars has been on the show, as you know. We've been doing a whole series of guests. Sherry Wild. Um, oh, my goodness me. Uh, Kath, Kathleen Martin. Uh, Stan Friedman, uh, and on and on and on. I mean, the lineup of heavy hitters is astronomical. And we have another one on tonight with Barbara Harris. Barbara, you're speaking at the conference, and I was just wondering if you could tell the folks what your topic will be. Well, I'm, I speak, I'm a local historian, so I speak primarily about Giant Rock and the Integratron. And uh, that's basically, I, I talk about what happened here at, uh, in the Moronga Basin and why having the retreat and having um, contact in the desert is a, in this particular area is really, you know, spot on and why we should have, be having it here because of, you know, of the energy and the vortex and, and everything that has happened here in the past. It's um, just a prime spot. So, and one of the one of the primary, um, I guess, the the things that I like to bring people here for, and like um, what I'd like to bring notice is, is the is the giant rock, as you mentioned earlier, because that's kind of where it all started, and uh, that's where George Van Tassel had his encounters, and that's where the um, original contactees would go out and. This giant rock sits out in the Mojave Desert, and, it, and I don't want people to get confused because, you know, it, at one time this rock was considered the largest freestanding boulder in the world. So, you know, and it's not like the Ayers Rock in, in Australia. This is just a boulder. This is like somebody took a big boulder and just dropped it there, and, and it's sitting in the desert. And what makes it really unique is it's of a, a volcanic structure, it at one time sat over seven stories tall, covered an area that was over 6,000 square feet, and um, and it was really um, a, a place that um, was very quite popular, and it has quite a history. It, it goes back to the 19th century where it was really popular with the Native American um, tribes 
in the area. They, they considered it a sacred ground. And, and then at the turn of the century, in the 20th century, there was a man, um, he was a prospector. He came out and he dug under the rock and he made um, a home under the rock. And that was kind of the start of um, many things because as he dug under the rock in a lot of his writings, he documented seeing almost tunnels in different caverns under the rock. But um, this guy, the, the prospector, his name is Frank Kreitzer, he has quite a history, and in his history kind of ended sadly in a way that he blew himself up and committed suicide. And, um, and unfortunately, uh, he left a, a vacant house under the rock to live. And, and eventually, um, there was a man named George Van Tassel that you talked about. And George Van Tassel ended up moving his family in, and they came to live um, under the rock or at the rock. And that was in the 1950s, um, late 1940s, early 1950s. And that's kind of when everything started for this area. And that's when we had, um, you might say, the contact in the desert of that, that time and that, that era. And um, George Van Tassel's story is extremely fascinating because, you know, he, um, he, his story began kind of, he was from back east. He made his way out here to California. He worked in a garage with his uncle. He um, became a test pilot. He worked at used aircraft at McDonnell Douglas, um, Lockheed, and um, he actually became friends with um, Howard Hughes at one time. And um, eventually, once he came out here to Giant Rock, he had an experience with um, these, um, I like to say, according to George, there was a spaceship that he had an encounter with, and they were from Venus, as he says. And the people from Venus gave him information, or I like to always paraphrase this, and uh, they kind of basically told him that, you know, you humans, you're coming along okay as a species. However, it seems like by the time you get it, you get to the age where you finally get it you die. So what these beings from Venus wanted to give George, they wanted to give him some insight and give him some um, information on how to build um, the Integratron. And the Integratron was meant to do cellular rejuvenation. It was meant to be an anti-gravity machine and possibly to do time travel. So it had a, a lot of um, lot of possibilities. However, the Integratron never came, like you said earlier, it never came to its full potential because unfortunately George passed away and, and died before it ever got turned on. So, but um, the one thing that did happen that um, in order for George Van Tassel to build his Integratron, they used to have um, spacecraft conventions at Giant Rock. 
and um, this is this is so fascinating for me because you know you got to imagine this. This is the 1950s, 1960s, and and I'm going to set this stage for you. If you guys can Im- imagine the Mojave Desert, okay? Now, the desert is we have dirt roads, we have sand, we have like little cactuses all over the place, and then you're driving down the road and there's a boulder, okay? You get that? You see that picture? So you see this in the 1950s, and there's no porta potties, there's no air conditioning, there's nothing, there's no creature comfort, and there's a man with his wife and three daughters living out there, and they've had this experience of seeing a UFO, and and he has this intention now of building this Integratron, and the way he's going to build it is he started developing these. Um, they call them spacecraft conventions, okay? And um, and so at one time, in 1959, it was documented as many as 15,000 people were making their way to the middle of this desert to listen to George Van Tassel and other contactees, as they were called, to talk about their UFO experiences. And um, isn't that amazing? I just, I just think that's just fascinating, don't you think? It's absolutely incredible to think. You know, this is the era of cars. People are just starting to drive in cars on a regular basis. You're seeing the integration of um, uh, people want to do everything in their cars. For example, there's uh, movie theaters you can go see in a car, and uh, also known as drive-ins. There was the word I was looking for. Um, there's something the younger generation may not understand, but we used to actually go watch movies in our car, and it was a real treat, without question. Uh, you, you started seeing uh, the integration of restaurants. People would go to a restaurant and sit in their car and be served directly in their car, not like a drive through but actually be served in their car. So what you're saying really brings us into that um, element, that time, that era, where people were just mm-hmm. driving around in their cars exploring freely and to come across something like this in the middle of the desert is absolutely astronomical and of course you know you've got all these uh, cold war things going on at the same time folks and people are still curious about space um, we've just had the Roswell incident not too long before that so people are more curious, more skeptical, not skeptical, but more curious than, than perhaps we are today. Well, it, what also made this even more interesting was the fact that the, the prospector that lived there prior to Van Tassel, he had built an airstrip there. And when Van Tassel moved in, he filed papers with the <laughs> FAA and made it an official airstrip. So it was called Giant Rock Airport. And people were not only coming to this giant boulder for, you know, to listen to these these spaceship conventions, but they were also flying in by airplane, and they were coming in by campers, and they were coming in by their cars, and and so you would see rows of airplanes lined up, and what was really fascinating was the fact that out in the middle of nowhere he built a restaurant. For his wife and so she had something to do 
And what this restaurant was called was called the Come On In. And what was noted for it is noted for its hamburgers and its apple pie. And one of its most famous customers was Howard Hughes. He wow. used to fly in just to get a piece of that apple pie um, from George's wife. Talk about an Americana and, moment. Yeah. And Howard Hughes was actually one of the first contributors to the Integratron to um, help build it and get it built. And an interesting bit of uh, history about the Integratron is if you look at the way it's built, it was built with um, the way a shipbuilder would build in a tongue and groove type of way. It didn't have any metal. So there was no nails. It was built with peg and groove and it had an upper chamber and it had a lower chamber. And for those who um, know, you know, heard of Howard Hughes, he was also very known for the Spruce Goose. And this was going on at the same time the Spruce Goose was being built. So um, we've often wondered or we've often theorized, you know, was the Spruce Goose, you know, or the Integratron built from the same wood that the Spruce Goose was built from? So, you know, those are always theories. Those are always like little things you wonder about because, again, you know, this was all going on at the same time. We were just coming out of the war. and and the people that were migrating to this rock to listen to George Van Tassel and to listen to these other contactees talk, this was their opportunity to, to talk about things, to talk about UFOs, to talk about exiles, to talk about government conspiracy. To, you know, it, they had been underground. They, they never had that opportunity. So this was just all new to them. And um, and I, I look at it now, and I look at old pictures, and I look at, you know, I read documents, and I kind of almost look at it as almost like the burning man of its time because of what it, what it allowed people to do and allowed them to express themselves either through art or through books and, and allowing them to just um, speak out about things that they were just that was on their mind, and they would come out to the desert to, to do so. So it was just an interesting time out here. Barbara, I have yeah. a couple of questions for you. The first one is, were any of these uh, contacts uh, in, in the deserts uh, when everybody came together, were any of them ever filmed or taped for future broadcast or archival purposes? I believe they were. Yes, they are. Wow. And um, Yeah, they are. And um, you could, um, I, I think some of them are even on YouTube. Um, I, I don't know. There are um, several different um, uh, people that, there is an archive of Benson Castle's uh, work and, and his, um, you know, and his books and things like that. So I don't know. I think it, um, the people from the Integratron, they, They've been composing a library, and I know many of the people out here in the Morongo Basin, and um, many of the family members have collected quite a bit of information from it, from him, and uh, and what went on out there. 
The other question I have, did mm -hmm. word about this particular area spread by word of mouth, or how was he able to get the information out to the public at large? Well, primarily, he, um, he developed a foundation. Once he started this, he, um, he developed a lot of his, uh, uh, you might say, he collected um, the, the donations he needed through a foundation called the um, College of Universal Wisdom. So that went out through a newsletter. Plus, George was kind of a salesman. He would go out and, and he would he hit the airwaves. So um, during that time, television was starting to come in into its own, so he would do that. Plus, Hollywood, it's been documented that he had quite a few friends in Hollywood. Now, I don't know who the friends were, but, um, you know, he just kind of networked. Okay, fair so, enough. Now, this yeah. sounds like people were gravitating toward, towards this particular area and this particular rock in general for centuries because we know Native Americans congregated around there, too. And I was wondering if you could tell a little bit of those stories. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because this area, <clears throat> unlike many other areas in the, in the desert, they didn't have a native tribe. What we had were nomadic tribes. So we had about four tribes that would come through the area. And it would be that they would not spend their, their time in the hot desert during the summer. So they might be going, what they did is they would be going from Arizona, which would be very hot in the summer, and they would make their way up to the mountains during that time. So in the spring, they would spend their time and they would spend it on their journey, they would stop at Giant Rock and have a three-day experience. And uh, they actually called it, um, their ceremonies, they actually called them seances. And during that time, only the shamans or the chief were allowed to stay around the rock. And the actual tribesmen had to stay like a mile away from the rock when they were around there. And basically, that they would have their ceremonies and they would conduct their ceremonies. And, and it wasn't until the early 20th century, or late, you know, uh, 1887, that there was a, a white man. His name was Charlie Ricci. He was the first white man in this area who was invited to share in that ceremony with the native tribe. And um, so basically, he was the first man, white man, invited to experience that. And over time, the native tribes, because of what's happened to Giant Rock and how much has changed, the native tribes here have kind of washed their hands of the rock because it has changed so much over the years that they don't consider it as sacred as it once was. Um, and many of us historians now, um, locally, we're trying now to um, restore that confidence or to restore and preserve it now in the future 
because um, it, it has changed over the years. Um, but uh, back, back in the time of Charlie Ricci, there was um, a chief who, find, who, as the Native Americans were, were moving out and Frank Chrysler was moving in, the prospector who lived under the rock, there was a Native tri tribesman who actually put an imprint on the rock and he put a scorpion, a petroglyph, on it. And um, for those who, who um, understand Native American folklore or Native American um, animal culture, or I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but uh, the thing about a scorpion is it means that it's a holy ground, that it's a place that's um, a place of healing. So um, it, it's kind of sad that we've kind of lost that over the years. And right now as a historian, I'm hoping to, to restore that and, and to rebuild that confidence with the natives. Yeah, it, it's a rich part of history, and it's one that, you know, I have to give you credit for to trying to maintain and bring back. Is, was there talk of vortexes and that type of thing? When did that type of um, description surrounding giant rock come around, vortexes and uh, different elements of energy? Does that go back all the way through the oral traditions of Native Americans as well? Well, I don't know if um, Native Americans actually understood or or noted vortexes as we know them today, but um, the the idea of the the giant rock being a vortex is, has actually been documented in modern day um, science. And um, back in the time of George Van Tassel, there were people that noted that how the how the rock um, was how much it weighed, the pressure it put on the earth, and and there were scientific um, mathematical equations that way back in the 1950s that people figured out, and it created, um, you know, and told them that this was a vortex. And over time, that what has happened now is modern science has tools, and we have equipment and technology that can measure that particular um, phenomena. So um, it was actually um, not too long ago, it was in, in the 2000, that there were people from um, the local UCLA, USD, and there, there have been actually people from all over the world that have come out to Giant Rock and the Integratron that have come out to measure the electromagnetic um, intensities of the vortexes out there, and uh, and it's very very interesting because one of the one of the things that does happen is that the, the weight of that particular rock sits on a ley line, and that particular ley line is close to the 33rd north parallel, and for um, a lot of people who understand the 33rd north parallel um that you know that number 33 is a very auspicious number to begin with because in many many cases um the number 33 it um, tends to relate to the freemasons and the illuminati but then when you start really um diving in and um looking at the 
synchronicities of the 33rd parallel. And um, we're at the Mongo Basin and where we are up here, we're not exactly on the 33rd parallel, but you're close enough to that energy. And what happens is being on that same weight or being on that same um, line, it shares that energy. So giant rocks shares energy with the Great Pyramid of Giza. Okay? Wow. And, yeah. And, and so that's only one of them. But if you also look at the other things that the 33rd North Parallel shares on, and that's why I, sh I talked to you about the Joshua Tree Retreat Center, because that's also where we sit along with Giant Rock. There is all kinds of like incredible things that have happened on the 33rd parallel, north parallel. You'll have, if you look at, you look it up, for one thing, there are the most UFO sighting ever on the 33rd north <clears throat> parallel. You gotta excuse me, for some reason my voice just keeps cracking. That's um, okay, would you like to get a glass of water? <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to take a swig of water in between things. Okay, I'm I'll having just... having a lot of wind and dust out here, so I'm just like, oh, can you hear me going, uh, you know. <laughs> okay, but, um, I'll just tell people uh, who we're speaking with, you go ahead and take a drink. <laughs> Folks, we're speaking with Barbara Harris, and we're having a wonderful time tonight. We're deep in the Mojave Desert tonight, and we're looking at something called Giant Rock, and... Barbara is a wonderful historian who's researched this area from time immortal, and she's telling us all the various aspects of the vortexes surrounding this rock, the various um, electromagnetic uh, uh, electromagnetic forces around the rock that have been tested, and uh, we're going to be getting into some deeper things, such as uh, I want to ask her when she's ready. Do you think that perhaps the vortexes that were surrounding this rock may have been a portal of some sort for the UFOs to travel along? Because, you know, you had mentioned that fact that it happens to be sitting on the same type of line that uh, Giza is sitting on, the uh, pyramids at Giza. And for this to be, <laughs> I mean, there's got to be something going on. This just can't be coincidence. I just can't believe it's coincidence. And so it makes me think perhaps there's a reason why this rock is there uh, in order to be a conduit, perhaps, for some interdimensional travel. I don't know. I'm putting it out there. I, I totally, yes, totally believe it. And um, this is a solid granite rock, mm. okay? So you have this granite rock that's sitting there, and, and it's also a volcanic rock. Okay, most people who come out here believe that it is done by glaciers. So it has a volcanic background, and, and, it's, and how it was formed is a very unique formation. And, and, I, and I, I'm not a geologist, so I don't like to go into all of it. So I, I kind of direct people into going to the, the um, Joshua Tree National Park, and they, they have a really neat... Um, way of showing you how the boulders in this particular area are made and it's called like a monozoic 
monozoic granite, okay? And in one of the ways that I'm going to, you know, paraphrase and I'll probably butcher it in the mean way, <laughs> in a, in a way but, but how it goes is like there were these volcanoes that came in and they, they, they you know, spewed up. And then we had groundwater that spewed up over that. And then because of where we sit up here in the high desert, it gets very cold. So the, the water would come up and they crack and they, they formed these boulders and the boulders would split off and they rolled off. So if um, you have a real interest in knowing the geology of the area, um, the Joshua Tree National Park um, really, they have on their website, they have a really good you know, um, description of that. So you figure this boulder is sitting out there and and the one thing that does happen um, is, is it on its location is you have that, that what also happens is is there is also aquifers underneath it because this whole area used to be part of the Sea of Cortez. So we had water that all came all the way up to this area and then it receded. So we had water that receded and we have these underground rivers. And what really becomes very unique is where the Integratron is built. And that's only three miles from Giant Rock. In the middle of the Integratron is where three converging rivers are in the middle of this dome building and you often wonder now you go back to the 1950s and you ask yourself how did somebody know to build that particular building there and and it's um and you have to also look at the not only the the aquifers and the three converging rivers you have to look at the um it's next to a mountain where they mined gold. So you look at the um, all of those kind of, you know, um, facets, and you have to also feel that this definitely is some kind of a porthole. And, um, and also, too, when you go into looking at the history of this particular area, and this is what I found so fascinating when I first moved out here, is talking to the locals and you go back to the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s and you talk to the locals of that time they talked about ufo sightings and sightings as if it, as if it was an everyday occurrence really I mean, wow it is unbelievable and to the it's to the point where they published it in their local newsletter they published it in the in the papers that it was just common, commonplace to talk about seeing sightings or seeing things or watching things in the sky, and uh, and I'm just like I was so fascinated with that when I first moved out here because it was just it was just like everyday occurrences to the people out here, and and what really drew me also out here too is the fact that. In this particular area, not only with Giant Rock and the Integratron, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, I called this particular area uh, like a, a hotbed, a mecca of spiritualism, because there was also several other 
people who were coming to this particular area who were practicing other um, uh, areas of spiritualism that was that were quite different than the the other you know um, religions that were going on How so? in the country during that time. How so? Yeah. Um, the the Joshua Tree Retreat Center was a prime example of that. The founder of that particular retreat center, by the way, that retreat center is the oldest and largest retreat center in the Western United States. Wow, that's okay? It presently sits on 400 acres, and it has 18 vortexes, and it has several aquifers. And several of the buildings were designed um, on that on the property. They were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and his son. Okay, and if you all know Frank Lloyd Wright, of course, he, of course. He, he, built, he again dealt um, and built things in the form of a triangle, going again with a number three, and again the thirty-third three parallel, and going into that. But there was the founder, the founder of um, of um, the Joshua Tree Retreat, which was really called the Institute of Mental Physics. And that goes back to like, um, back to again in the early 1900s. It was found by a man named Edwin Dingle. And what made him so unique was he was born in Cornwall, England, and he was a journalist. And what he did is he, he mapped an expedition and he walked uh, across China in the 1900s, China and Tibet. In, in India, and he mapped that all out. And what he did along that way is he he just um, studied the Tibetan way of spiritualism and understood and started to learn breathing and yoga and all that kind of stuff that we know now. And you got to figure that's in the 1900s. So after he he went through his process, he came back to New York. And he started um, the Institute of Mental Physics. And then in 1941, he picked up from New York and came out here to to where it is now, in Yucca Valley. Well, it's Yucca Valley at the time, but now it's Joshua Tree. So that was one. So that's 1941. That's the same time that George Van Tassel was doing his thing in in giant rock. Then there was another man just down the road called Cabot Yersa. He was another spiritualist who who also had his spiritual journeys. And there was another man locally called Anton Martin who also had another level of spirituality who came to the area. This is all within an, like a, a 25, 30 mile area of each other. So and definitely there was some energies going on there that people were attracted to and gravitating towards. Now, what made Howard Hughes jump into the fray? Was he hoping for some sort of immortality if this uh, Integratron was made? Was Howard Hughes hoping for immortality? I I don't know, but we all know that that was part of um, you know Howard Hughes' journey. Yeah. That he was always looking for that. You know, um, he, people look at his history and say he was a little bit of a wacko. He was a little bit off the mark. But, um, you know, he 
he wanted uh, he was looking for that I think he was looking for something um, as for the Integratron mm-hmm. what George Van Tassel was doing and what he intended on doing out here um, he was ahead of his time um, there's people that have come to the Integratron now it's it's presently owned by by three sisters, and um, could you they, describe um, its physical makeup for for the folks uh, on the radio? Um, okay, the Integratron is a structure that um, is a a dome structure. It has a um, an upstairs and a downstairs. It is a parabolic chamber. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, this parabolic chamber is fine-tuned and and is constructed in a way so it is um, it it resonates resonates um, with an EM frequency and and it it has um, what what it was intended to do is it it was to um, spin. There were these on um, die rods or these rods on the middle of the the chamber and they were to rotate on a bed of air. And as they spun around, it would create a, um, an electrostatic um, arc. And the arc would then go into the upper part of the chamber. And that would be a, a negative charge on the upper part of the chamber. And, um, and then the, the part on the bottom part, there were these copper coils. And people were intended to walk in the bottom part of the chamber, and as they walked in through the chamber, the the charge then um, would um, heal their body from the the copper, the the arc, and the electro electrostatic charge. So uh, I don't know if I'm explaining that right because I don't visually so. seeing it, mm-hmm. but you know ahead of its time because we know now, okay, for one thing, that. Um, those kind of things heal the body nowadays. We use magnetics. That's basically what it was. It's using magnetics to heal the body. And um, however, when you see, if you look at the Integratron and you see the dome itself, um, I often wonder, and I often said to myself that, you know, because it was going to be creating like in a, a, a bolt of lightning that you've got to figure that, that that charge was going to be so brilliant and so bright that um, I don't know if I would have been willing to, to walk under that kind of a charge over my head. And, and then the sound of that would have been so ear-piercing. So, um, and also, too, the other, the other theory behind it that is that that um, that spun around and it would spin at such a, a frequency and such a rate that many people, have you heard of the Philadelphia experiment? Sure, of course. That, yeah. that that would have also been an effect on it, that maybe that eventually that would have spun at such a, um, a speed that the Integratron would have disappeared and it would have gone into a time travel. Um, who knows what the possibilities of the Integratron would have been. Um, I do know that there were people that once the, the sisters have um, took it over, 
and they had scientists and people come visit the Integratron that um, there were people that, and scientists that have looked at it and said that Van Tassel was onto something, that it would have worked. They, they said that what he was doing would have worked. So um, who knows? Who knows what could have worked, uh, would have worked. And um, I know that many people have offered um, the sisters to, uh, to turn it on. But um, again, how do we know that it isn't already turned on? You know, um, again, uh, you know, I'm going philosophical on you. There. Oh, that's fine. But, it's great to go but, esoteric. <laughs> yeah, esoteric here. But, you know, the thing is, is um, the technology that, that George was using at the time was perfect for what he had in the 1950s and 60s. But our technology today is so different. And, and how the Integratron is being used today is quite differently, and and um, the girls and the, the owners are using it more in a in a in a way they're using um, it in sound baths. Do the girls still live there underneath the rock? Pardon me. Do the girls still live there underneath the rock? There is um, the the rock has has been filled in. Um, after okay, George Van Tassel passed away, um, the, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, came in and they filled in the, the, the rock. And um, so now the, the actual rock itself is open to the public and it's public land. And um, that's been one of our, the drawbacks because people go out to the rock and, um, and it, it's quite loud sometimes. And there's uh, uh, people who come out and graffiti it and leak garbage and do things, oh. and and uh, and it's it's very difficult. So we're we're on a mission, you know, historically as a historian, we we try to teach people and educate people, and and um, and now also too, we're into a, a phase where a lot of the property around Giant Rock could be sold off. To um, solar fields and wind turbines now, so it's always a you know it's open desert. It's publicly owned land, and uh, so we share it, and and we need to educate people about what what actually took place there and how important it is to our history. So. It sure is um, not only Californian history, but all of America, and I'd argue North America as well. Now, with its parabolic shape. There must be, it must be designed like that specifically to accentuate certain sound vibrations, I would think, and that would be part of it as well, I suspect. Not only oh, know, the voltage, yes. but the sound. Yes, definitely. And it's all about the frequency and how mm -hmm. it recharges the cells. And um, the, the sisters today, they, they use crystal bowls for that, that um, particular rejuvenation. So um, you can, um, you know, look that up on theintegratron.com for, for information on that. But, um, you know, and that, that's part of all the, the history that goes on here. The giant rock doesn't exist without the Integratron. The Integratron didn't exist without, the, without giant rock and um, Van Tassel. And the whole, the whole network of, of history between the 
um, Native Americans, the early pioneers, the early um, uh, guys who came to do mining in the area. It's such a unique network and um, such a unique history um, of, of putting it all together and linking it all together and how it comes to modern day. So much so that Giant Rock has, uh, has an interesting leading up to the, the modern day because in the year 2000, Giant Rock split. A piece of it broke off. That's why it's no longer, when I said it, it used to be the, the largest boulder in the world. Because um, according to um, some of the, the readings and some of the stuff that you can read on Giant Rock, they're um, people who, who proclaim a, a Hopi prophecy that, that says that, that if the rock would, you know, had split down the middle, that mankind was going to be doomed and we were going to, you know, not go on. And this was in the year 2000. So, you know, you've got to, you know, get the idea that the millennium, you know, was there. And, and then the idea that if it split on either side, that, of course, that mankind was going to continue and we were going to go on. And fortunately for us, that it split on the side. So, um, of course, mankind is going on, and uh, we've continued to go on. The but, timing um, of that is pretty creepy because you think 2009-11, right? Yeah, well, 9-11. Yeah. But, um, in February of 2000 is when um, when this this did split. And, um, and even though many people have different views of why it might have split, how it split, or what it split, and, you know, you could always get controversy behind it. I always say that, you know, this, this rock was millions of years old. You've got millions of years old sitting here. And why did it pick, you know, February 21st, 2000, to split? So the day is always it for me. Why did it pick that day in millions of years that it existed? Why did it pick that day to break off? And, and so when we take people out there, the big thing that I often I ask them to do is often to look past the graffiti they might see and to touch and to feel the energy of that rock. Because there's no denying that when you touch that rock and you lean against it, that you feel something. You feel, you feel that that earth presence, and um, and it, it's been it's been very exciting too. Because um, for many of us who have gone out there for contact in the desert the past few years, um, <clears throat> we've taken some of the the speakers out there, and. Um, and at nighttime, um, have you ever heard of um, James Gillian? Do you know James Gillian by chance? I know the name. I know the name. I don't know him personally. Okay, but James James Gillian, that was one of my the the first um, contact in the desert. We took him out to to Giant Rock, and and I didn't know him. I didn't know he even was on one of my Giant Rock tours, and um, and he would go out. He went out to Giant Rock with us, and. And he would talk to us. He, he, he has a ranch, I guess, up in Oregon where, it was, where he has a porthole on this ranch. And, and seeing UFOs uh, on his ranch are really quite common. 
So um, we had him out at Giant Rock, and, and he was just standing there with a small group of us. And, and he would talk to us about how he, he would feel the ancient. He felt the, the old, you know, parts of Giant Rock there. And, and then he felt these new beings that were around Giant Rock. And I've had many, many sensitives or many people who have a sensitivity to the rocks tell me about these new beings that hang around the rocks. But the, the interesting thing that happened with James was we were all standing around and we were looking up at the stars because when you're out in the middle of the desert and you look up at the stars, you know, you could see the Milky Way, you see all the stars, you see everything. And uh, we were, he pointed up to a star and we were watching these, these what we thought were satellites going by. And he pointed to one and I said, oh, that's just another satellite, you know, no big deal. And he says, no, it's not. And he pulls out a little laser that he has and he points up at the laser, he points up at the satellite, and he goes, watch. And he pointed up at it, and he, he said the words, power up. And as he said the words, power up, oh this, this thing starts vibrating and pulsating and going, boom, boom, boom. And we're, I mean, there were like 10 of us standing there, and you could have picked our jaws up off the ground. And then... Then, then he goes, well, look, there's another one. And as he pointed to it, it stopped dead in the sky and started going backwards. And I went, oh, I guess that's not a satellite. So, so you know, it's... <laughs> We've only got a few minutes left, but I, I wanted to ask you, part of this story, there's an ominous part of the story, where George Van Tassel has passed away in 1978, and all his stuff has disappeared. All his documents, all his notes, everything's gone. Any idea what uh, happened? Um, I, I'm going to have to add to that because I think over the years that, over his, his wife, um, collected much of that information, and I think a lot of that information has been recovered over the years. Okay. And um, okay. and as for his, as for his FBI file. Um, they have been released. In fact, I, I have his FBI file. I've been able to read it. It's about four inches thick. What does it reveal, um, Barbara? It's quite an interesting read. So, um, yeah, it, it again is part of um, part of the history of what, what went on out there. He was quite investigated. Uh, many people really were looking into what he was doing out there. I think a, a lot of it had to do with um, him being so close to um, one of the largest marine bases in the country, mm -hmm. for one thing, and what he was dabbling in. Um, he had a, you know, he, they were looking into a lot of things he was doing out there. So um, he was a person of interest, definitely. So, yeah, and uh, it, it, the, the history goes on and on with him. And every time I intend on writing this all down, and I intend on getting the book out and and adding to it there's always another piece of the history and the mystery as i call it and it's going to um, keep going uh we're going to have to start to wrap up and just looking at the time thanks so much for coming on the show this has been just wonderful perfect thank for you tonight. and uh, thank contact you. in the desert folks may 29th through 35th uh, 31st 2015 
And our guest tonight has been Barbara Harris. She's an expert and historian on Joshua Tree, Giant Rock, George Van Tassel. And it's just been an outstanding story for all of us. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. There's the music, www.nightfrightshow.com, folks. Thank you all for joining us. See you all next time. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.